Hey folks, my name is Andy Sitto. I'm a singer, songwriter, performer, producer, living in Denver, Colorado, and my guest this week is singer, songwriter, performer, and producer out of Carbondale, Colorado, Jackson Emmer. Welcome back to Middle Class Rockstar. I think I say different professions every week when I introduce myself because there's so many different uh, facets of the of the music business. Anyway, um, I've got Jackson Emmer on this week, and he and I met because we both played the Yellowstone Songwriter Festival uh, this past September, and that is in Cody, Wyoming, and the festival put us in housing together, and... Um, we hung out for the week and, and did the festival. It's a, these songwriter festivals are typically writers' rounds, so you'll get three writers on stage and swap songs for an hour and fifteen minutes, and then there's a you know twenty minute changeover, and you might be running to the other side of town to do another writers' round, and then three more writers jump up. Anyway, it's a lot of fun, and if you're one of the performers, you really end up bonding with a lot of the other songwriters, and um, they're well attended. You meet a lot of new people, make a lot of new friends. It's really cool. And so shout out to the Rocky Mountain Songwriter Festivals and uh, and Mike Booth for having us both um, on several of his festivals. And uh, yeah, that's how I met Jackson in person. We had uh, connect. Well, I guess I had heard about him before. Um, I know he did some shows with David Starr, who was a recent guest on this podcast just a couple weeks ago. And I'd also heard about him from Chris Kay, who's been on the podcast several times. And, um, yeah, so I, I'd wanted to meet him and, uh, he shot me an email a few weeks ago about carpooling to Folk Alliance at the beginning of February, which we're going to do. Although this podcast will likely come out after Folk Alliance, we'll be carpooling together there. And, um, also he emailed and said, Hey, can we, you know, let's do a podcast and, or maybe I emailed, emailed him. I don't remember. Anyway, we ended up doing this podcast together. Um, and Jackson is celebrating, I guess, a gigantic year of releases. Um, it's what he calls 22 in 22. He put out 22 songs in the year 2022. He was, he wasn't going to do nearly that many and his wife challenged him. He said, well, why don't you just do 22 songs? He said, okay, let's do it. So he got them done. He got them out. Um, several of those songs are co-writes with Tom Paxton. I, I have to bring up Tom Paxton because he has a weekly write with the Accidentals, who were just on the show a few weeks ago, and also writes frequently with Buffalo Rose. And Shane McLaughlin was recently on the show as well. Um, anyway, Jackson and I had a great conversation. I'll think you, I think you'll enjoy it. He's a wonderful singer, songwriter, uh, guitarist, musician, um, and producer. And we talk about uh, coming up and how he first got into music, uh, some side gigs he had along the way, uh, other sources of income for musicians that don't involve just playing, uh, the balance of being a dad of a a one-and-a-half-year-old at home and also having a wife but still touring and playing a bunch of shows every year, lots of things. So we'll jump right into it very quickly. First, if you'd like to support this podcast in a monetary way, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. You can contribute uh, to the making of this podcast and my musical things for as little as $3 per month, and it's greatly appreciated. If you'd like to help out in a non-monetary way, please take a second, 
Give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It just takes a second, and it helps me out a ton. Quick thanks to our sponsor, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. I'm also accepting a couple new sponsors at the moment. Shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com to chat about that further. All right, let's do the show. And you're chatting with me from Carbondale, Colorado, correct? The sunny and beautiful middle of nowhere, as I call it. The sunny and beautiful middle. How many people are in that town? About 6,000. Okay, so you got a nice, you know, it's a decent size army if someone were to attack. <laughs> you know, I would say, yeah, it's 50% hippies who won't touch a gun, and then the rest of them are just wonderful uh, redneck ranchers and uh, a lot, like, big Latino population. So, yeah, I would say we're 3,000 strong fighters and 3,000 tree hookers, and it's working out. Uh, in, which side would you be on in, in a scenario like this? I am so woefully in between. Um that's, yeah. uh, I don't know, that's just part of my life. Um, I'm, I'm definitely more of a tree hugger, but uh, yep. I don't know. I'll throw a rock or something. <laughs> how far of how I don't know, how did you, you got us talking about the invasion, the inevitable invasion of Carbondale in like 30 seconds. I know, I know, I went right that. for it. Yeah, yeah, well, well you know, if, if, uh, if my town of Lakewood decides to attack, um, you probably don't stand a chance, but... Um, you know, I, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll find out when the day comes. <laughs> we'll find out. How far are you from Denver when you have to fly places? Well, I don't fly in and out of Denver very often because it's such a drive. It's three, three and a half hours when the weather's good and everybody's behaving themselves on I-70. But as you know, yeah. there's all kinds of accidents and rockfall and snow and avalanches sometimes even. So... Uh, I fly in and out of Aspen if I have to do a fly gig, and I just sort of pray that the ticket prices are in my favor when that <laughs> when yeah. that day comes. Can you? Oh, fly? sorry. There's the garage door one more time. That's okay. That's okay. Um, can you can you fly all the major airlines out of Aspen? No, just United. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So do you have you got some United miles then? I got some. I don't. I don't do a ton of flying. I'm. I'm sort of new to the fly gig life. Yeah. Um. Because I just used to drive everywhere, and I've burned through like three cars doing hundreds of thousands of miles. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm new to the fly gig thing. I am loving it. I got a hard case for my guitar, and it's been bomber. And now I fly when I can. But yeah. Yeah, I'm still learning how that that world works. How much time are you spending on the road right now? Hmm. Maybe a third of the year. I think I'm at like 75 shows a year now. Um, I used to do like 150, um, and a lot of that was on the road instead of local stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, so now it's about 75 dates a year around the country, and it's usually around Colorado, Texas, Montana, Wyoming, and California. I, I tried to sort of paint the whole country uh, a few years ago. And then I realized I was <laughs> in way over my head for how often I could actually get to places. So I've really pared it down and just try to focus on 
the West. And is the 75 dates uh, a choice as opposed to the 150, just where, where you're at in life? Or, you know, do you want to be playing more or less ideally? That's a choice. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel very grateful. I can play basically as much as I want, um, but I would rather play fewer, better gigs and have more time with my family. I have a one-and-a-half-year-old um, kid and then just be out on the road all the time, which felt a little unsustainable in that way. Um, my dad was not home a lot. He was always working. And so it's really important to me that even though I, I work steadily when I'm home, I'm really present with my family. And that's hard to do when you're on the road half the year. And also I got into, you know, producing for other artists and like teaching workshops and retreats and, um, just recording more stuff and making more things for the internet, which is what, you know, you're doing right now. Um, and those things are all ways of keeping me happy, keeping me home, keeping me sane and diversifying my business so that it's not totally dependent on live shows like, you know, pandemic hit and all of a sudden we were out of work. That was a bit of a wake up call for me. Of course. Yeah. What did your dad do? As a what did my dad do? Guy? Yeah. Uh, he was an international tax attorney. Okay. So, so he wasn't a touring musician. He was gone for other no, reasons. No, he was, yeah, he'd gone for totally different reasons. Um, and his gig is, oh, it was, it, he doesn't do it anymore. He's retired, but um, yeah, he, he would help big companies find loopholes in tax laws when they did deals in multiple countries uh, to, and just work out tax arrangements to their benefit. Yeah. Yeah. It, so you're talking about it, it being important to be home with your family, of course. Um, and you were mentioning better gigs, doing fewer, better gigs. And I think that's something that a lot of us think about often because, uh, you know, you can do three hundred, hundred and fifty dollar gigs, um, mm-hmm. or you, you know, you can do you can do the math, right? How many how many can I do? Um, the, I know being on the road, there's a lot of who in this town will have me? Is it a brewery? Is it a house concert? Is it a is it a restaurant? When you're talking about better gigs, what? What does that look like for you? Is there a financial number or is there an audience number? What, what is a better gig? Hmm. Uh, well, there's a fun like Venn diagram, you know, like the circles, overlapping circles. Yes. Um, that my friend Joe Desposito sort of made up about being a musician. And one part of the circle is like, is this fun? Am I having a good time? And then the next circle is like, exposure am i playing for the people that i want to play for and then the third one is like the money and you got to have like two out of the three or something like or the ratio has to be big enough to draw you in one direction so uh i don't know i didn't explain that very clearly but yeah that makes sense but yeah i think um back in like 2016 i was playing bars all the time four or five nights a week And often like, uh, you know, 75 bucks would be like super low end. If I walked away with that, I'd be like, well, I got gas money and dinner and that's fine. I had a good time. Um, and up to like two or $300. And I would, I felt like a King when I made $300 (laughs) 
And, uh, and I did that all the time. And I just was like, this is really cool. And I could probably do this forever, but I will burn out on it. And also I wasn't really making fans, um, at the rate that I think it makes sense to, because I'm, well, the music has changed over the years, but I'm pretty gentle. Um, my voice is like really torched and raspy and has these overtones from the years when I was doing these bar gigs. And so I just found that um, I made more money and I was more satisfied with the music when I set myself up for a listening crowd and spent the time booking that and trying to get people to come, um, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night rather than trying to play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then take Monday off and then be exhausted and just be in this kind of booking bar band cycle trap. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I thought about that and my wife really encouraged me at the time um, to sort of uh, rearrange my life and start working towards people who would actually listen. And that's what I did. And consequently, um, not only did I make more money, but I also made more fans and I felt like the music I was making was really um, better and from the heart. And so you asked like about a dollar amount or whatever, that that has changed and obviously like gone up over the years. Um, and now basically I'm trying to hit $1,000 as a minimum for any show that I do, um, which to a lot of musicians is not a reasonable number. And I realize it may sound greedy of me, but also there's a lot of overhead. Um, there's a lot of travel. There's a lot of work. I am my own record label. So any surplus that I make goes into paying accompanists or session musicians or putting out records later or merch. And so um, there's no real like, <laughs> there's no uh, net beyond that. You know, there's not, there's no like, there's no label to catch you. Um, sure. So it's on me to kind of juggle all those things. And so I try to go for, gigs that pay better that was a long rambling answer can you tell i have a cold no no you you sound like a, a sexy country singer okay okay well <laughs> i'm turning up the heat for you andy <laughs> is it when you first set that precedent and and i know you know there's instances where you'll get more than a thousand bucks and instances where you'll get less uh depending on the gig and all the details but when you set that precedent said okay I'm a dad now. I've got a house, thousand bucks. I'm going to try to do 75 of these a year. Did you find that, I mean, I mean, were there certain people or gigs that, that wouldn't book you anymore? Or was that, was that tricky to find? Or did you, or, or by setting that precedent, were you sort of able to just go into it? Um, say, Hey, this is, this is what I'm worth. This is what I need. And, and people go with it. Um, it's a real dance. Some gigs are certainly not available to you anymore. And I think that that's why um, a lot of musicians are financially trapped, honestly, is because you have to, if you want a new life, it'll cost you your old one, period. You know, yeah. like, yeah. you, if you want to, if you want to grow into that, you can't, like, as much as I would love to play a dive bar, for $50 and I, like I have as much fun at that show as I do any other. Um, I can't do that. I can't put that on my website. I can't spend time booking it. I can't spend time driving to that gig, blah, 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 blah. And then turn around and charge someone thousands of dollars for a private party. Um, 
Like that just yeah. doesn't make sense. So yeah, some so I've I've had to drop off some things, but I did find um I did find that when I like set a higher number and if I could sell t- enough tickets to make that worthwhile or if it was a private event where like I'm really and you're playing music for people to like have memories, you know, and if you really deliver on that, it's kind of priceless. So if you connect with the clients who have the resources to pay you for what is a priceless thing, a thousand bucks or more is like, it's nothing, you know, it's just, they're happy to pay you that. And I was very uncomfortable with that at first, but then I found that there's kind of room for me. Um, And also this is this, I don't say this to sound arrogant. I say this um, because I think that it really matters like I try to always do an excellent show, an excellent job. Like I never show up having not practiced enough or not really sure of the tunes or the set or like, like things are not half-assed. Um, and a lot of musicians do that. And then they put on like an okay show. And I, I basically try to, I mean, I haven't always nailed it, but of course, every single time I walk on stage for the past like five or six years, I'm like, we're going to have a memory and we're going to do something that people in this room will not forget. And yeah. I treat a concert that way. And I treat playing at someone's wedding that way. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons I've been able to get hired again and again and again um, at a comfortable wage. Well, and I know it is tough to, there are certain nights where it's tough to have that mindset for, for whatever reason, right? You've done it a bunch of nights in a row or there's less people than you than you expect and and uh you know it certainly is a, a sign of growth in next level musicianship to say hey doesn't matter i'm here to uh i'm here to kick ass for three people or three thousand people or a wedding or a whatever it is you know the people who are in the room are the only people that matter that's the only people yeah. you're playing for right yeah. Like you're not playing for the millions of other people in the universe who didn't show up. Right. Not the universe, the world. But but yeah, it's all you have. So um, it is a head game. And um, sometimes I lose the head game. I'm not perfect. But um, but yeah, I guess I just, I, I a few years ago, dawned on me, I was like, every moment on stage is an opportunity to, to make a memory and connect with people and I could get in my own head and miss the opportunity, or I could be present and deliver something. And I don't know what'll come from being present and delivering, but I know what will come from being checked out and to yeah. um, self-defeating, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When it comes to tour life and being married and having a kid and having a dog, how do you make it work. I mean, there, there are clearly some sacrifices you've, uh, you know, if you're playing 75 dates, you might be on the road a hundred days. I don't know how, how many days you end up being on the road in any given year. Um, but there's some sacrifices and there's times when you have to lean on your wife to, uh, to do everything at home when you're gone. How do you sort of, how do you balance these two worlds? Well, I don't know how to balance the two worlds. Um, things always feel maybe like a little bit out of balance and you just are always kind of like, 
grabbing like giant stacks of plates. Like it's, I'm never like, oh, we're nailing this. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'll say that, but, um, but when I'm out of, out of town, my wife does everything. Um, my kid is in daycare three days a week, which is a gift, but it's not full time. Excuse me. Um, so there's some break in my wife's schedule where she can do her own thing and she has, she works part time too. So there's that. Um, and then we have a lot of friends cause we've lived in Carbondale in the Valley for a long time. Now I've lived here on and off for over 20 years. Yeah. So she's always trying to get together with other parents or families while I'm out of town and just like always kind of have a little time in the day where she's not the only one, you know, making sure our kid doesn't die. <laughs> and, and then when, when I am in town, like, um, it really doesn't matter if I was up until two or three on a gig or something or driving home. Like I often, you mentioned how many days a year are you gone? If I can drive home that night after a gig, you know, I do because I want to get up with my kid in the morning. And so yeah. it doesn't matter if I get home at two or three, like I'm up at five thirty or six with our kid and we do the day together and make sure my wife has a break. And I'll do that. I mean, for a couple of weeks at a time before, like she lets me sleep in, not lets me sleep in, but like, you know, before I would ask for like, Hey, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Cause yeah. I know that when I'm out of town, like she's, she's pulling the heavy load. Right. Um, so it's just kind of a dance like that. And um, thankfully, our kid's not in school yet. I think once you're in school, your schedule's a lot more fixed, and that has pros and cons. But right now, daycare three days a week, our lives are a little bit flexible. And you mentioned two other sources of income, and especially coming about for you after, uh, you know, when COVID happened, as it, as it did for so many of us. Um, so you, do, you produce and you do some classes. Um, does that provide you flexibility to do work at home? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and that's been a real cool gift. So yeah, this is my studio that you're looking at. It's not much to look at. It's a big yeah. white room. Um, but I have, um, mostly local musicians, um, from around the Valley and around Colorado that come here to record. And I, I, you know, I'm a producer and an engineer and I play several instruments when I'm on stage, you know, it's just me and a guitar singing and um, you know, that thing. Yeah. But when you get in to make a record, you, there are all these other skills that are involved in that. And, um, a few years ago I, I was like, I think I, I think I can learn this. I think like, you know, yeah. I can catch up on this. And so I started doing that and I just, I got really lucky actually really fast. Like the first album that I did for other artists was like a benefit album. And so Tim O'Brien and Kathy Matea and Bill wow. Kirchin and all these other just like bluegrass and Grammy winners jumped on. And, um, and that was all recorded like remotely and here. And, um, and I produced it and did the mixing and mastering. And then it was like number five on the bill billboard bluegrass charts. And that was just like the first thing I did. And that's just a crazy stroke of luck. Like it was good. I did a good job, but like, but also I, I got lucky. Um, so wow. that just like set me up for people being into working with me. Um, and so that's not a full-time thing. That's, that's a part-time thing, but yeah, I make records for other people and try to help them make their best work. And that lets me, you know, end my day at four and go pick my kid up. And when she goes to bed, I've finished guitar parts in the studio and yeah, hang out with my wife and 
yeah, that's uh, it's nice to have something to do that isn't on the road. That's uh, that's a pretty cool first uh, production engineering gig, I would say. Well, and I yeah, I'd made records like for myself over the years, you know, and with like little bands I was in. Um, so it wasn't like the first time I ever did anything, but it was the first time I did anything for anybody else, and it was a stroke of luck. Oh, well, that's 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 really neat, um, and something you something you can have for your resume for uh, for future clients. What year was that 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 came out? Did you say that was twenty twenty one? Yeah. Okay. It's pretty pretty recent. Recently. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So going back a little bit, um, how did you first get started in music? I was at an all school meeting in like seventh grade, I think. And um, I remember it vividly that it was an outdoor thing because I grew up in California before I moved out here. And my friends were DJing the all school meeting and they put on um, some Jimi Hendrix. It was Purple Haze or Foxy Lady. And I had never heard music like that. I never heard a guitar like make that noise. But I just remember being very moved just like walk, 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 walk out this, you know, strat wah pedal sound with fuzz on it and whatever. And I was just, I didn't know any of those words. I just felt moved. And I started asking people, I was like, what is this music? And they were like, you're an idiot. It's Jimi Hendrix, dude. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Been under a rock, um, which in fact, I basically was living yeah. under a rock. I hadn't heard of Jimi Hendrix, but, but once I knew that was an electric guitar and that it could make sounds like this, um, I started saving up to buy one and I also would go to my friend's houses who played guitar and like sit in their garage. And when they weren't jamming, I would just try to do stuff. And I, I got, I mean, I got hooked in like a week or two or something. I was just like, I think I'm going to get one and carry it around forever. And, <laughs> and I, I did basically carry a guitar around all the time for the next 10 years. Um, and I mean, I still carry, carry one around now. But like between ages 15 and 25, I was like, anytime I went to a party, anytime I went to a friend's house, anytime I was going, you know, just, it was with me all the time. And, um, that was the start of it. What was your first guitar? I had a Squire Stratocaster that was black with, um, two humbucking pickups. And I didn't know that you had to block the tremolo, um, in order to keep it in tune. So I just always played out of tune for like, probably two years. And then yeah. I have, I'll show you this guitar. Let me pull it out here. This was the second guitar I got. Oh, sweet. For our YouTube audience, you get to see the guitar. Oh yeah. All right. YouTube, check it out. <laughs> this was, this was the second wow. guitar I ever got. It's a Fender Stratocaster made in Japan and it, it was cheap because nobody wanted to buy the one with the flowers on it. Uh huh. And, uh, and I, you know, I painted the pickguard and I put on different knobs and stuff. And it's wow. it's really a junker, but it has great tone. And um, like last week, I was working on a musical uh, that involved Emily Sailors from the Indigo Girls. And this just whole thing like fell into my lap over the holidays. And we were working on these guitar sounds. And I, you know, I have like a maybe just three guitars here or something. And I thought, none of those are the right sound. Like, what am I going to do? And I pulled this one out and it was perfect. And so now it's just, it's, it's regained its place in rotation. I haven't played it much in the past couple of years, but. It's beautiful. 
It's really fun and just just a trip. I I brought it to a country jam once in North Carolina, and they just uh, they got very uncomfortable. I think because they thought I was gay, and they just instead of saying anything about it, they just shut the jam down. They were like, "Well, we're done for this week." You shut Thanks the jam coming. down. I yeah. shut it down. Yeah, yeah. With this with this gorgeous blue flower guitar, <laughs> they couldn't handle it. It was too punk. Oh yeah, no, that is that's exactly what that is. Were your parents supportive when you you know when you started saying, hey, "I'm going to play some guitar"? Yeah, they're my parents have been really supportive. Um, I won't say that they're that they've been very good at being supportive. Like they didn't. They're not musicians. They don't really listen to a lot of music. They don't even really know where you might go to find live music. So bless their hearts, you know. I, I say that, I know actually that that's a tongue-in-cheek saying, but um, but I mean that for real. Like, uh, yeah, they really, they really did their best for me. Um, and that involved a lot of them being like, well, do you want to go hear this, this jazz at Stanford? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Which is really cool. And like, yeah. you know, I should have appreciated that more than I did. Um, but it would have been nice to like get tickets to the blues club in San Francisco or maybe the warp tour or, yeah. you know, Rocky grass or any of these things where like things are happening and it's a vibrant music culture. Yeah. And um, as I'm sure, you know, some of the jazz or classical stuff or even like show tunes, things is sort of like, even more of a memorial for days gone by than folk music can be. So yeah, um, they, they really, they were supportive and they did their best and I'm grateful for them. Um, but I sort of had to find my own, my own thing on my, on my own. At what point did you think, well, I might be able to make a living doing this? Oh, well, I was really delusional. Um, and I graduated college right during the the great recession, excuse me, in 2009. Yeah. So I just, you know, I was looking for jobs and stuff and nobody would would give me a job. And, uh, and I was still at the tail end of college and I thought, well, I can't get a job. I might as well go play some music for a couple of weeks. And I was in school in Vermont. So I planned this two week tour around new England with a couple of friends and we drove around in a Subaru playing backyards and some bar gigs and stuff like I didn't even know how to get a gig at that point it was like so ragtag and terrible and we weren't very good even you know we just like we knew some songs and we showed up (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) that was that was it um but we did this for two weeks and after two weeks we each like walked away with a hundred dollars after expenses and I and I remember thinking like I could live like this forever like this is amazing (laughs) you know like I was so hooked and, and obviously that's not sustainable. And I, and I couldn't see that. Um, but, but yeah, after that, I, I kept trying, I would plan these tours and I would, I would have a part-time job and, and do that for six months. Or I think the, the longest one I had was a year, year and a half, but I would save up and plan these tours and be like, and from here on out, I'm a professional musician. And, uh, that failed so many times. Um, I think I have been a professional musician since, you know, full-time since 2019 or 18 or something, something in there. Um, what was the day, what was the day gig you were balancing before that? Well, it changed. Um, 
I worked at a grocery store. I worked for Whole Foods for a while. And I also worked at another local grocery store, just like stocking shelves, which um, was nice because they would let me go to gigs, you know, whenever I had to go. Yep. And I was also a limo driver for a while before that. Really? Um, and a landscaper. Um, I was a produce farmer for a little while. Um, and I've waited tables. And those are the main ones that have been time consuming. Um, but, but most of my income since, um, what year would it be? 2012, 2010 has been music. Um, yeah. which when I think about it that way, kind of blows my mind. That's <laughs> that's over 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty special. Um, and there's been a lot of, you know, you've gotten to do a lot of cool stuff. Um, and, I mean, we could we could go off into a, a million different things. One thing I want to make sure we touch on is what you did in 2022. And the story that you told me, forgive me for forgetting a few of the details, but you were telling me that you were setting out to record and release like 12 songs or 14 songs in 2022, something like that. And it was your wife who said, no, you big wimp. Let's make it mm -hmm. 22. And she, yeah. she raised the bar. Uh, so yeah. yeah, talk about that a little bit. You released 22 songs last year. Well, first off, my wife is a badass and is always raising the bar on me. Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah, I thought, I, you know, I've released uh, records before and that's an interesting process. And I think there's a lot of merit to it, but I don't think it's, directly beneficial to spiking the Spotify algorithm or the YouTube algorithm. And it's not even necessarily how people still listen to music. Like most people under the age of pick your number, listen to an individual song or two or three that are their favorites on a streaming service. And so I thought, well, I've been breaking, breaking my back, making albums. And, uh, I don't think I have that in me now that I'm a new dad and um, I'm just kind of getting my sea leg at that. And so I decided to do singles and I decided on 22 because my wife dared me. And so a new so single came out or a new song came out about every two weeks for all of, of 2022. Yeah. And I had only recorded one of them at the start of the year. Um, I had written more than 22 songs. So I had all the material written but then of course, as you write more songs throughout the year, you're like, well, actually, I, I think I want to put this one out. So like the whole plan, yeah, the whole plan changed. And like my computer died twice. It's It's been a whole thing. Like everybody got COVID multiple times. Like just there were, there were all these, these moments where I thought like, I don't know how this is going to work out. Like I'm not going to hit the deadline or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then I, I was buoyed by the public promise and um just made it just made it happen <laughs> well and you did um there was an ep at the end of the year too right in december you had the 10 cent western ep did was that the re was that like uh 2021 22 uh that was like i think 19 to 21 um and and really like those could have been singles but i was running out of time yeah um because of how you have to stagger things on Spotify. And I recorded those all together as like a little unit. So I thought, well, they work as an EP, like let's just do that, but call them singles. So that's a bit of a fudge, but uh, the 22nd song is called What Good is a Gentle Man? 
And that one I recorded in Nashville, like in October, it was the last one to get done. Um, and that's when I was like, oh, I think I'm going to make it. Like, I think, I think we did it, you know? Um, so yeah, that, those are the numbers. I was, it was interesting because we, we've known, we know each other. And my first introduction to your music was live, you and an acoustic guitar. Um, so listening in and delving in this week and, and letting things play on Spotify as I was driving around, I got to thinking, you know, I, I think the so the specific song I was listening to was uh, When the Lawn Gets Dark. And I, I got to thinking, you know, you're one of those people, if I didn't know you first and I heard your voice and then saw a picture of you, I would be amazed. You know, you know how your favorite radio DJ, you finally like see what they look like, mm -hmm. you go, he looks like that. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, <laughs> it's funny because you, ha you have this, um, it, you know, a very deep, uh, it, but also very soothing voice. And, um, I don't know what that person looks like, but I think that person, uh, you know, might be on a farm or something or have gigantic biceps. I don't know. Not that you're, yeah. not that you don't have, uh, uh, biceps, but, but I mean, big ones and <laughs> twice the size of mine, twice the size of yours. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, uh, I know that mismatch that you're talking about. That's not the first time that's been brought up to me. Um, I mean, I think it's funny cause it's, it is the voice that I have, you know, it's, you know, you don't yeah. really get to pick your voice. Um, you just learn how to use it in certain ways. And, um, as I mentioned, I was playing in these bar gigs, um, around Colorado and primarily in Aspen, which is like around 8,000 feet. So it was like four hour gigs. And I just, I torched my vocal cords like several years ago and couldn't sing or talk, uh, I mean, I couldn't sing for months and I couldn't talk for a few weeks and I had to relearn how to sing. And that process had uh, yielded the voice that I have now, which is, it's got all these overtones and that gravel stuff that you're talking about. Um, and I think it's also part of why it's soothing and, um, and it's unique. Like there's no, I don't hear any other singers who quite sound like me, even though there are a lot of other raspy singers. And I think that that's kind of a gift and it, it comes from the damage done. Um, so it may, be, it may be mismatched um, the first time you hear it, but it's what it is. And I guess I'm grateful for it. That's a great voice. Um, what did you learn from releasing 22 songs, in 2022, both about yourself and about the industry? Hmm. Well, I learned some, I guess what I learned about myself was that um, I had suspected that there was room for my music in the world, but you know, there's a lot of reasons to doubt yourself. Um, and a lot of, I mean, even though I've been making my living as a musician for now over 10 years, like we're talking about, yeah. um, I have self-doubt like anybody else. And you kind of look around, you're like, well, what? am I doing what I should be doing? Um, yeah, but I assumed people would get bored and, and disengage, um, because that's a lot of music to release, you know, every two weeks, like how often do you really want to hear from someone, even if you love them as an artist? Uh, but what I found was that people kept listening and kept sharing it with their friends and the audience for the music grew. 
through that regular release. I do think that strategically that's too much music. And as I've talked to more people who are actual like licensing or playlisting professionals, yeah, that is too much music for a year to release um, in order to get in Spotify's good graces. But it did work some for me. And um, and across the um, all the platforms, you know, like January of 2022, my listenership was like a thousand people a month. You know, this is Spotify plus YouTube plus Apple Music or whatever. And by the end of the year, it was 12,000 people a month. Mm. or or maybe more um and that's with like zero paid placement there's no pr team there's nothing it's just me making music and releasing it um so that tells me that there's an appetite for it which personally is comforting and also industry-wide there is kind of an insatiable appetite for content um but it does pay to be more strategic about your releases which i will do in the future um did I answer that question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what is, so now from what you've learned, and you're talking about Spotify's good graces because we all should care about that. Um, no, we do, we do have to. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. What will you do differently this year to, to release music? Well, um, I'm going to give some thought to what I'll actually do this year, um, or I am giving thought to that, but what I will say is that I talked to uh, someone who runs a company that does primarily playlisting and revenue generation via streaming services. That's their whole thing. They've been doing it for over 10 years. And their thing was like, okay, we're going to have a record. You have to make a record. Your record has to sound like it fits in the world of X playlists that you like or that you think you should be on. So like listen to those and figure out what sonically is happening yeah. That makes you unique, but also um, puts you in the world. I think he he used the frame um, conform with integrity, which is such a disgusting term. But like, but he understood <laughs> he understood that. Like he's, he wasn't yeah. like, you got to do this. You know, if you're going to make your money, like get into my cookie cutter. He was yeah. like, this is how it is. I get that it's weird. Here's how I would summarize it. So anyway, it's a weird it's a weird trap we're all in when you're at the mercy of algorithms, but you make your record, you release seven singles every four to six weeks leading up to the album release. So if you have mm. 10 tracks, you've already released seven of them as your singles. Yeah. And you're submitting to playlists each time for those singles. Um, and a lot of it is like, is, I don't want to say a lot of it. I don't know how much of it. Some of it is at the mercy of personal relationships. So like this person was going to a holiday party at the Nashville office for Spotify. And he was like, oh, I'll see so-and-so and so-and-so. They run all those playlists. And it's like, there are two people who work for Spotify that if you play Americana music, they make the, they make the choices. They live in Nashville. If they like your music, you're in. And if they don't, you aren't. And I think that's very dangerous to have there be two gatekeepers and I think the premise of Spotify is very cool that it just pays everyone um, a rate for listening to music for free. Like that's a lot better than piracy. But um, it was troubling for me to hear that you can do all this work and get connected with whoever and you know it still comes down to two people and they like you or they don't. 
and they find you through their professional network, or it could be because your track's just doing great already on Spotify and they decide to goose it. So mm. that's what I know. I haven't really decided yet what I'm going to do with that information. Um, oh, well, and actually the last part of that is that yeah. there are other companies that help you um, monetize your royalties through YouTube because YouTube, I think, has three royalties that come into play, right? There's a video right, there's a master audio, and then there's the composition. So you get paid three times for a YouTube video. If your channel's big enough and you're, you're uh, connected with a company that will take care of that for you, and your audience is big enough. So all those things are on my mind. It's like, well, I got to get my ducks in a row and do that. Um, Cause it'd be nice to make more money while I sleep, but isn't that, isn't that everyone's dream? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I absolutely, it's, I didn't know that about the two gatekeepers either for, um, you know, for Americana or, or probably whatever genre, right. There's probably just a few gatekeepers for everything. And that is, uh, interesting. I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad or, or so I think it's maybe a, um, a little bit of everything. Well, one thing that I, I do want to say about this that I, um, I've told other people, but I, I feel like doesn't get brought up enough, is that Spotify, record label, pick your gatekeeper. They want you to have an audience already. And that relationship is between you and whoever listens to your music. So it is, there's so much that's actually in our control that if we don't sit around and wait for Spotify to give us a hand... Um, I think that actually is more beneficial to us and will help us get the boost when the time comes. Um, but it's really easy to sit around and talk trash about Spotify and blah, 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 blah. But it's a lot harder to go out and like play a good show every night and make fans or make content for the internet that people care about. And that is a better yeah. use of time. So even though I just was talking trash about Spotify, I, <laughs> I try to focus on the latter. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And the the term that you use, conform with integrity, um, which you make the good point too. Yeah, there's parts of that term that are disgusting, but at the same time, haven't we always done that? Um, you know, when uh, when people were sitting by the radio and that's all they had they were listening to one radio station and then they would go out and, and make music and say, I want to be a musician. I want to be just like what I, what I just heard. Um, I think maybe we've always done that, uh, to an extent, uh, you know, most people want to be genuine in what they're saying. And, uh, most people also want to find an audience for it. Well, yeah. And I think that it's, uh, I think it's a little bit moronic to, to fancy yourself such an original that you aren't going to fit into any box that's ever been built before. Um, like na name your all American original, you know, artistic genius. And let's just start with Bob Dylan. Uh, all of his songs fit into a standard song form that has been well explored before Bob Dylan arrived on the scene. Right. Um, but he, he found a way to put his stamp on it. And because there's some familiarity in the form, like that's one of the reasons that he kind of cracks the door open on, on people being interested in his work. Yeah. Um, I have found this personally, like I used to play like really free form jazz or punk or songs that just like, I didn't even understand song structure at the time. I just was writing stuff that I thought was cool and I was into poetry and I would make these things. And some people 
liked it, but mostly people didn't care. And then at some point I realized like, oh, if you put it in this, in this format, which is like a verse, a chorus, a verse, a chorus, and there's a bridge and then there's another chorus or, you know, pick your song structure. But if you put it in this kind of architecture that people can relate to already, they're a little more patient with you when you bring something new to the table and they start to connect it with something they already love. And soon enough, they're in, they're in with you. And I don't think that that's inauthentic. Um, I don't think that's, I mean, it is unoriginal in some ways, but like you're saying, everybody has that to a degree. You gotta, you gotta build things on the, uh, on the shoulders of what's come before you, especially when you're making art, you know? So, yeah. And now you've gotten to, uh, uh, explore the shoulders of those who have come before you in a live show, uh, setting too many times. I know you've done, um, a lot of really cool, um, openers, Robert Earl Keane, Tim McGraw, uh, Sierra, Sierra Farrell. What's, I mean, when you think about cool gigs, are, are, are those some of the, the best you've done? Um, some of them are the best that I've done. Um, and there's some, some real memories attached with them. And then some of them are just, you know, a thing that happened that it's like, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> yeah. know, like, yeah, like the, those things are on the list because of the name recognition. Um, they're not on list cause they're the best gigs I've ever played. I, <laughs> I remember when I opened for Robert Earl Keane, actually, um, it's, I was opening at this theater and there's 600 people in the audience and it's sold out. Yeah. And I walked on, I walked on stage and something about the way my guitar was sitting, um, immediately like unbuckled my belt and my belt was just splayed open underneath my guitar. Like my pants didn't fall down, but like, it was yeah. very obvious that my pants were open. And oh, wow. so I had to like not play for a second, fix my pants in front of 600 people <laughs> and make a joke about it and then proceed to try yeah. to do a good show. Now try to win them thinking, over. Yeah, yeah, try to win them over. They're already and, um, not there to see you. <laughs> yeah, and they're not there to see you. Um, yeah. I think I made a joke about how it wasn't that kind of a show. And then I played my songs and um, and I did I did great. You know, like I, I got a standing ovation and I sold out of all of my merch. There was just this crazy line. And, um, Killer. and that was a gift. Um, that was a gift that like the, the promoter gave me and Robert gave me, although I only met him briefly. Um, and that just, you know, the alchemy was right. And talk about a head game, you know, your pants come open at a Robert Earl opener set and you gotta just be like, I'm not going to make this <laughs> the main event in my brain, yeah. you know, but I, yeah, but yeah, I remember it in hindsight. Um, it was a great show. And that said, my favorite shows are ones where like something really unexpected happens and the magic is just there. I ended up playing for a group of like British, primarily British college students in a, in a Canyon in Utah, like a year or two ago. And they didn't know me. And like, it was for this party and like the whole thing, I was like, this is not going to go well. They're not going to like this. Um, but we sang to get, I mean, like I started singing in the dark, there was like an oil lamp and the moon was out and they just all pitched in and started singing along to all my songs. And it was just total magic. Wow. And I may never see them again. They may never see me. Um, there's nothing particularly glamorous about that. You know, there's no big name on the bill, but, um, 
but I'll remember that show forever because it was special. Yeah. I want to bring up uh, Tom Paxton for a moment because I didn't realize how wide Tom's reach was with, uh, with younger artists. Um, you know, and so you're on, you're on this week and you have a weekly co-write with him. I just had Sav and, and is it Katie? I just had Sav and Katie from the accidentals on. They mm-hmm. do a weekly co-write with Tom. And then a couple weeks before that, I had Shane McLaughlin from Buffalo Rose on the show. Oh yeah. <laughs> and they did, I, they write with him all the time. I'm not sure if it's a weekly write and they did an EP of songs that they wrote with Tom. And so all these people I've been interviewing uh, are all doing weekly writes with Tom Paxton. How many hours in the day are there? I mean, he must write a bunch of songs, but he sets aside time for you every single week, right on Monday morning or something. You guys meet up and write uh, every week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when the pandemic started, I'd already met him a few times and we were acquainted, but not really super close. And he called me about something and he was like, what are you up to, man? And I was like, oh, I'm just totally depressed, chilling out at home, doing very little. What are you up to, Tom? And he was like, well, I'm reading the artist's way and I write my morning pages and I'm writing three songs a week and da, 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 da. And I was just like, oh my God, this Grammy winner, you know, like who's in his eighties, who could totally coast and watch TV now and nobody would fault him for it is outworking me by far uh, at the start of COVID because (laughs) I think it's good for his mental health, you know? Um, But that really inspired me to like, to not, to not coast or rest or get too get too in my head about it. And so we, we set a weekly writing date and um, it just so happened that the first one we wrote was good. Like I've written with a lot of people and sometimes you get in the room or you get on Zoom and the fit's just not right. The alchemy isn't there and the song isn't good and that's fine. It's like speed dating. You just move on, you know, no hard feelings. Is that a reflection um, on the chemistry with the person you're writing with or could it potentially be a great chemistry but it's just the wrong day, wrong time? I think I think the latter. I think it's it's very volatile. Timing timing matters a lot. Yeah. Um so yeah, I don't know. We just we just we already were connected and we really hit it off in this writing and the song was good and he wanted to like sing it immediately. Um and the song is called The Worst Gunfighter in Texas. It's about somebody who cannot hit anything with their gun. Um, which is kind of funny, but also there's just like been so much more gun violence in, in the years since, since we started doing that, uh, or started since we wrote that song that it's uncomfortable to play it out. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't play that song out. Um, cause I just think it could be, <laughs> the word is triggering. It wasn't meant to be a pun, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it could be triggering and I don't want that, yeah. but but that song went well, and that really blew the blew the hinges off the doors for us to keep writing together. And several of the songs I put out in 2022 were co-writes with him. Um, Ten Cent Western was one. Wild Sage, Desert Rose. Um, Ants in the Bear Box, which is a kid's song with a bunch of fiddle on it. And forgive me, there's like one or two more. But so we co-wrote, you know, five or six of the songs I did this year. And, um, 
he's just a good guy. He's, he's, you know, he's been doing it a long time. So I look up to him a lot. He's, he's generous with me and also with other young people that I think he cares about. Yeah. Um, and I just generally see him treating people uh, well wherever he goes. And um, it doesn't matter if they're also kind of famous or not. He's just, he's just a nice guy. So I'm grateful to be in his orbit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, whenever I listen to a music podcast, I uh, usually finish up after I finish up or sometimes before I finish up, I want to go hear what the artist sounds like. So like, I assume that a lot of people after listening to this will go type in Jackson Emmer to Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. Um, if if you were to give a recommendation of what to listen to first to draw people in, what would that be? Oh, which song is the first they should listen to? Yeah. Okay. Well, also, I meant to ask you this sooner. If my answers are like too long or too short, you'd tell me I'll change it. I don't know if Your I'm on the right track. Your answers are perfect. Okay. Um, I would recommend that people start with Colorado Line, which is uh, a really juicy honky-tronica track. Um, that was the first of the 22 singles that I put out. So it has a, a blend of like Western acoustic Americana and also some electronic music. Um, so I would start there and I would listen to the 10 cent Western EP, which is really fun and just has a Western swing trio. It's very acoustic. Uh, and then I think one of my most, like one of my favorite songs is I love you now. I loved you then, which, uh, hasn't gotten a ton of, plays on the internet but when i play it for people live people often bring it up or want to talk to me about it so yeah. i think it's kind of a sleeper yep yeah okay well so people listening let's just go check out yeah <laughs> and important to note too um you know as you're talking about early earlier you're always on tour you're doing lots of dates especially in the western united states so um if you like uh, jackson he's got all the contact info all the ways to contact and mixing words in the show notes um if you you want to host a house concert or you want to have him play in your town um reach out he's a nice guy i'm very available and i would love to meet you if you're listening to this or watching this um thanks for thanks for caring at all and andy thanks for having me on your show is this the wrap-up is this the farewell i think this is the wrap-up yes sir Dude, you're awesome. Thank you for doing this. And I'm excited to see you uh, on our way to Folk Alliance in a couple weeks. Yes. Yep. We're going to be getting in a car together. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We're going to party and drive very safely. <laughs> very safely. That's Jackson Emmer. Go check out his music. He just told you it's fresh on your mind exactly what to go listen to. Thanks, Jackson, for taking the time. I appreciate it. And once again, to our listeners, if you'd like to help out in a monetary way, you can do so for as little as $3 a month. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. And if you'd like to support in a non-monetary way, a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast is a great help. That's all for me this week, and I look forward uh, to chatting with you next time. Take care. <laughs>